Chapter 5, Part 4 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, edited by Gerald Bernie Smith. Chapter 5, Part 4 The Study of the Old Testament and the Religion of Israel. 4. The Work of Jesus. Jesus' Relation to Judaism. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples immediately associated with him were all Jews, and their activity constituted an integral part of the Judaism of their day. In a history of Judaism, they would take their place beside the Zealots, the Zedekites, the Essenes, the Hermit Banus, and other reformers and preachers whose activity was called forth by the conditions of unrest peculiar to that particular period in the history of the Jewish people. But the reform movement begun by John the Baptist, continued and transformed by Jesus, perpetuated and expanded by his followers, ultimately became differentiated from Judaism and was called Christianity. Hence the student of early Christianity quite properly emphasizes the work of Jesus as especially important for the history of the new religion's beginnings. Jesus' Relation to John the Baptist at first, Jesus himself was a disciple of John, and the earliest stages in his activity cannot be understood without first noting the character of John's work. Full knowledge of John's career and message is difficult to obtain. He appears to have been a vigorous moral reformer, a stormy preacher of the desert who called upon men to repent and be baptized in preparation for the coming judgment. His activity brought to expression a prominent phase of the Jewish faith, namely the belief that ultimately God would interfere on Israel's behalf and establish a new order of things. John proclaimed the necessity of repentance and purification among Jews themselves as a preliminary to the consummation of their hope. His invectives were hurled against high and low alike, but with disastrous results for the prophet himself. Herod Antipas became offended at his preaching, cast him into prison, and ultimately put him to death. Josephus in Antiquities says that Herod feared lest John might instigate a revolt a statement which may imply that John was disposed to dabble in politics. But of this we cannot be certain. We do know that the burden of his message was religious, and in this lay its significance for our present study. It is clear that Jesus received baptism at the hand of John, but in almost all other respects, the relation between the two remains a perplexing problem. Among the early Christians who preserved our gospel tradition, 
there was variation of opinion on many points. Some statements imply that John stood to Jesus in the relation of the promised Elijah to the Messiah, while other parts of the tradition make John distinctly deny that he is Elijah. Similarly, in some sections of the narrative, he positively affirms his belief in Jesus' messiahship and makes the announcement of this fact his chief mission. Yet in other connections, his belief in the messiahship of Jesus is quite doubtful. But apart from these attempts to define the official relationship of these two individuals to one another, the question of more fundamental interest is what Jesus' personal reaction toward John's movement actually was and how far Jesus received from John vital stimulus for his own future work. This is the point of special interest for the historical student. The continuation of the Johannine movement side by side with the movement inaugurated by Jesus though only incidentally mentioned in the New Testament, is also an important item for the early history of Christianity. The Task of the Biographer In examining Jesus' own career, the student is confronted at the outset by the fact that Jesus occupies a twofold position in the history of early Christianity. In the first place, he gathered about him a group of hearers to whom he imparted instruction reflecting his own personal religious experience and living. Secondly, after his death he came to hold in the thinking of believers a new position at God's right hand in heaven. He now possessed truly official dignity and was expected to return at an early date to set up the messianic kingdom upon earth. The consciousness of this distinction between the earthly Jesus of past history and the heavenly Christ of present faith is reflected in such a statement as Acts 2.36 to the effect that through the resurrection God had made the crucified Jesus to be both Lord and Christ, Messiah. Although the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith were thus originally distinguished, the meaning of this distinction was soon lost as believers reflected upon the earthly career of Jesus in the light of their newfound faith in his heavenly exaltation. They were now able to see in many of his words and deeds a much more elevated significance than they had observed while he was with them. This failure to appreciate his full dignity while upon earth was not credited to any lack in him, but was quite their own fault. Either they had been unduly stupid, or else for some good reason their eyes for the moment had been blinded. By this course of reasoning, they were able in the course of time to discover in the earthly life of Jesus practically the same official dignity and glory which they now attached to his person in heaven. The task of the modern student of the life of Jesus is made especially difficult by this situation. 
all the direct sources of information at present available date from a time when this process of reinterpreting the life of Jesus had been going on for 20 years or more. The problem could be easily solved if it were simply a question of reproducing this or that picture of Jesus as set forth by one or another of his early interpreters. But today the task of the historian is much more difficult since he must endeavor to determine what features in the sources represent the early Christians' interest in the heavenly Christ and what data relate to the earthly Jesus as he actually appeared to the people who associated with him during his public ministry. To be sure, the believer's new appreciation of Jesus after his death is as much or more a part of the history of early Christianity as is the story of his earthly career. But the former belongs in the history of the early community subsequent to his death and not in a strictly historical biography of Jesus. The character of the sources. In view of this particular problem, the student ought first to note the general character of the sources of information and the varied portraits of Jesus there presented. Paul's epistles were the oldest extant Christian documents, but Paul is interested almost exclusively in Christ's spirituality present in the believer and soon to come upon the clouds in glory. Yet it is worthy to note that Paul shows little or no disposition to superimpose the official dignity of the heavenly Christ upon the earthly Jesus. While in Paul's thinking Jesus was a pre-existent divine personality, his career upon earth was one of almost abnormal humility and lowliness. In fact, this point is especially stressed by Paul. But unfortunately for our present needs, Paul has mentioned only incidentally a few items in connection with the teaching and activities of Jesus. At an early date, Paul had several points of intimate contact with Christians, and a careful reading of his epistles with a view to discovering incidental information about Jesus' earthly career may be expected to yield some valuable results. The Gospel of Mark shows much advance over Paul's letters in assigning official dignity to the earthly Jesus. The author of this gospel is sufficiently well informed regarding the actual history to observe that this heightened significance of Jesus was not generally appreciated prior to his death by even his most intimate associates. But Mark himself labors under no such limitations. The disciples had been unable to understand certain words and deeds of the earthly Jesus previous to his resurrection. But now he has arisen, and in the light of this new belief, Mark is able to understand everything. On the strength of this assurance, he collects, arranges, and interprets the gospel story to meet the needs of the particular readers he has in mind, 
at the same time endeavoring to do justice to the person of Jesus as the official founder of the kingdom of God on earth. Before this oldest extant gospel can be properly employed as a source of biographical information about Jesus, the pragmatic interests of the author must be taken carefully into account. The same demand must be met in the case of Matthew and Luke. While they use Mark as one of their chief sources, and so carry over into the career of Jesus, Mark's interest in the heavenly Christ, they also attempt interpretations on their own account. In fact, they excel Mark in this art. The latter begins with the baptism as the moment when Jesus became distinctive through a special anointing by the Holy Spirit. But both Matthew and Luke point out that Jesus at the very first was begotten by the Holy Spirit. The author of John carries the thought still farther, making the whole earthly career of Jesus virtually the activity of an incarnate deity. A similar interest dominates the fragmentary remains of the other ancient Gospels, as well as the remainder of the New Testament books, insofar as they take any account at all of Jesus' earthly life. Since our sources of information are all interpretive in character and strongly influenced by the Christian's later confidence in Jesus' official position as Messiah, the student must use rigid critical processes in treating these sources if he would recover even an approximately correct portrait of the historical individual Jesus as distinct from the heavenly Christ of primitive Christian faith. Tests for determining the historicity of tradition. How can the historicity of tradition be fixed? In the first place, there is the test of literary analysis by means of which the other old elements in the gospel story are recovered. Since a comparison of Matthew with Luke shows at a glance that they both use not only Mark but other common source materials not contained in Mark, it is possible to reconstruct in a fragmentary way a body of non-Markan tradition antedating both Matthew and Luke. This earlier document, or these earlier documents, are probably older than Mark, although they have not been directly used by him. In the case of Mark, also, it is possible to discover certain strata of tradition, such, for example, as the parables of chapter 4, which he probably took over from earlier documents. A thoroughgoing literary criticism will endeavor to fix as far as possible the relative age of all the different constituent elements which have gone into the making of gospel tradition as it exists at present. But literary criticism cannot be regarded as a final test of historicity. Even the oldest recoverable source was composed from 10 to 20 years after Jesus' death. 
and the motives prompting composition were supplied by conditions within the expanding life of christianity while it is true that in these early days memory of the early jesus was still fresher than in subsequent times yet it is also true that christianity in the earlier period had its peculiar problems and ways of thinking in the light of which the earliest recoverable document was composed its author must have selected arranged interpreted and supplemented his materials if he sought to minister to the needs of his immediate environment and he could hardly have had any other motive for composition nor is a portion of tradition which first comes to light in a later document say in luke only or in john only unhistorical simply in virtue of its late emergence there were many persons who remembered jesus who talked much about him after his death and it is not at all probable that all the reliable things said by them were taken up into the written sources used in common by matthew luke and john it is quite possible that some perfectly reliable information may have come into the possession of one or another of these writers independently ultimately one must apply what may be called the pragmatic test for determining the historicity of tradition if anything is ascribed to jesus which is out of harmony with the age and environment in which he lived but is more closely akin to the problems arising during the expansion of the new movement in the years following his death that feature in the tradition cannot be safely connected with the historical jesus even if one should assume that jesus may have anticipated the future situation one must still reckon with the fact that certainly the disciples did not share this forward look and consequently were unprepared for the reception of any such teaching on the other hand the work of jesus as determined by his own particular situation did influence extensively the subsequent career of his followers hence many features in the life of the early christian movement may reasonably be tracked back to his words or deeds here the pragmatic test yields constructive results by pointing to the items of later tradition which show logical continuity with the situation of earlier times chronological and geographical data the constructive task of the student of the life of jesus revolves about certain main problems one of which is the recovery of the chronological and geographical outline of jesus's career mark it may be observed presents one schema while john follows a very different outline matthew and luke reproduce mark in the main although each makes a few unimportant changes neither literary criticism nor pragmatic considerations yield any very certain results in this field
the student may have to content himself with following the outline of mark incomplete and unsatisfactory as it is certainly no historian would attempt an uncritical fusion of the outlines of john and mark as a means of restoring the actual course of jesus's career jesus's messianic consciousness the question of jesus's self-consciousness has been much discussed in modern times did jesus regard himself as the jewish messiah and if so in what sense did he understand messiahship in order to answer these questions historically the student must take his stand strictly within the jewish world where jesus himself lived the national history of the jewish people had been one long story of disappointed hopes they had enjoyed a period of national independence under david and solomon but their subsequent history had been one series of successive subjugations by Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, Macedonia, and Rome. During all this time their faith in their God Yahweh remained unshaken. They were his chosen people, and some day he would surely come to their aid, restoring their independence and elevating them to a position of supremacy among the nations. In Jesus' day, this hope was current in two principal forms, commonly termed by moderns, one, the national, and two, the apocalyptic. The former rested upon the expectation that a lineal descendant of David would arise when the time for Israel's deliverance arrived. This Davidic prince would be appointed, that is, made Messiah, are anointed by God and would miraculously free the chosen people from all oppressors. It was this hope which prompted the numerous messianic uprisings in Palestine between the years of 6 and 135 AD. There were other Jews who had lost all faith in earthly princes and so had abandoned the messianic hope in its Davidic form nevertheless they retained their faith in god and redefined their hope in terms of a purely heavenly messiah an angelic being without any earthly connections whatsoever he was of purely divine origin but would assume the likeness of a man when he came upon the clouds to set up the new kingdom with his appearing the present order of existence would come to an end and the Jewish nation would be re-established in purity and peace upon a miraculously renovated earth. Since the Messiah of this new kingdom was to be revealed from heaven, this tree of hope has been termed the apocalyptic. What were Jesus' views regarding the Jewish messianic hope? The difficulty of answering this question has been greatly enhanced by the confusion of opinion which prevails in the Gospels. At one time he is given Davidic credentials and so is made the fulfiller of the national hope. At other times he is represented as denying the Davidic ancestry of the Messiah 
and he even affirms that after death he himself will come upon the clouds and thus fulfill the apocalyptic rather than the davidic hope in still other connections notably in the gospel of john he abandons jewish imagery almost entirely and defines his messiahship in terms of hellenistic speculation regarding the incarnate logos another favorite interpretation of jesus's messianic consciousness popular in later times bases his claim to official dignity upon the sense of special ethical and spiritual kinship with god the father no doubt the situation in jesus's own day was far simpler than that depicted in the gospels or in later christian thinking when different interpreters combine different types of messianic terminology in an endeavor to establish by every possible means the superior official dignity of the heavenly christ of christian faith the modern student is confronted by the difficult task of threading his way back through the almost inextricable tangle of later opinion to the more primitive situation of jesus the following possibilities in jesus's thinking have to be considered one did he adopt the national hope expecting a deliverance to be accomplished by means of a revolution against rome whether this was to be led by himself or by another there certainly is very scanty evidence for supposing that he entertained any such notion although it has sometimes been assumed that his thinking moved in this realm two did he expect redemption through the coming of an angelic deliverer this was the natural alternative to the jew of his day who rejected the revolutionary program but this apocalyptic hope in its purely jewish form allowed no place for a present earthly messiah the apocalyptic messiah was to be a purely heavenly being three did jesus so transform the apocalyptic hope as to give the divine heavenly messiah a preliminary human career upon earth he is thought by many modern interpreters to have done so notwithstanding the difficulty of finding in his environment an adequate incentive for so radical a change in jewish thinking moreover it is very easy to see how the disciples disappointed in their first hope that the earthly jesus would lead a messianic revolution when the fitting moment arrived might apply the apocalyptic imagery to him after his death in their new faith attained through the resurrection appearances he was now a heavenly angelic being capable of functioning as apocalyptic messiah four did he anticipate hellenistic speculation regarding his personality considering himself the messiah on a metaphysical grounds this view is not commonly held by critical scholars today although the importance of this item in the history of christology 
is generally recognized. 5. Did Jesus claim official messianic dignity on the ground of close personal religious fellowship with God? There is much to prove that his life was once of rich spiritual attainments, but many students now recognize that there are very slight grounds for supposing that any person of that day, however rich in spiritual experience might be, would find this fact a basis for belief in official messiahship. The Miracles of Jesus Among early Christians, interest in the miraculous character of both the person and work of Jesus kept pace with the growing desire to emphasize the official dignity of his earthly career. Paul, for example, gives no intimation that the earthly Jesus performed miracles. Although Paul makes ability to work miracles in the name of the exalted Christ a distinctive credential of the new religion, in the earlier elements of the gospel tradition, there is also very little said about any miracles of Jesus. Here his distinctiveness is shown more strikingly by his religious message than by his marvelous deeds. But in Mark he is first of all a miracle worker. The wild beasts are rendered harmless by his presence in the wilderness. And the people in the synagogue of Capernaum are astonished at his power over the demons. It is not his religious message which strikes them with awe, but the miraculous power of his commands. With authority he commanded, even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Matthew and Luke follow Mark in stressing the miraculous. And in John, Jesus' whole career is one glorious display of supernatural wisdom and power. This growth of interest in the miraculous as a means of heightening the dignity of the earthly Jesus was especially appropriate to a Hellenistic environment. Gentiles were particularly susceptible to the marvelous as attesting heroes and divinities. Heroes like Hercules and uh, deified emperors like Augustus had, according to popular belief, been born of a divine father and a human mother. Such stories were widely current and highly esteemed. Heroes and rulers also worked miracles, as happened in the case of Vespasian, for instance. He once healed a man with a withered hand, also a blind man, in Alexandria where many miracles occurred, by which the favor of heaven and a sort of bias in the powers toward Vespasian were manifested. As Christians themselves performed miracles in the name of Jesus, competing with the ever-present magician and with vigorous healing cults like those of Asclepius, the value of a miraculously begotten and miracle-working Jesus was increasingly appreciated. But in Jesus' Jewish environment, the situation was somewhat different. There probably were some Jewish magicians and exorcists in Palestine at that time, 
and they doubtless enjoyed a measure of popularity, especially among the lower classes. Yet their practices were prohibited in the law, and persons suspected of cultivating these arts were frowned upon by the authorities. Furthermore, miracles were not employed extensively to attest Jewish worthies. They did, to be sure, work wonders on occasion, but their chief significance lay in their teaching by which they communicated a message from God to his chosen people. In spite of the miracles Moses wrought, he was revered chiefly as the giver of the law, while great prophets like Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were almost exclusively God's spokesmen with no credentials other than the words they uttered. Hence it was very natural that the earliest element of gospel tradition, taking shape in Palestine among Jewish Christians and for the use in the Jewish mission, should have given almost no place to the miracle element in the career of the earthly Jesus, but should set in the foreground his remarkable teaching. These are the main facts which the student has to take into account in discussing the question of Jesus's miraculous person and work. Two chief questions to be decided are, one, did miracles figure as prominently in Jesus's own career as they do in Mark's portrait of him? Two, how far are the stories of Jesus' miraculous birth prompted by a conviction on the part of early interpreters that Jesus must have been thus divinely begotten since he surely excelled all other heroes who were similarly authenticated? The Personal Religion of Jesus The task of recovering information about Jesus' personal religious living is less difficult than that of determining the truth either about his messianic consciousness or about his miracles. In the nature of the case, the personal religion of Jesus did not lend itself so readily to the purposes of apologetic on behalf of the heavenly Christ. There was, to be sure, a tendency to eliminate from his life all genuine personal religious experience and activity as well as a disposition to make him the ideal Christian of later times. But these tendencies may be discovered with comparative ease, and our abundant information about Jewish life in Jesus' day, together with the information recoverable from the Gospels, enables one to reconstruct a fairly distinct picture of Jesus' own religious career. In attempting to restore this portrait, the student should have in mind such topics as the following. 1. Jesus received a rich heritage from his Jewish home and family connections. He was not a trained rabbi but a village carpenter, yet he was devoutly religious. Under such circumstances, his religion could hardly be of the scholastic type but would contain more emotional and mystical features. 2. Jesus employed with particular vividness the figures of fatherhood and sonship 
to portray the ideal relationship between God and man. In this connection, we are reminded that Jesus had listened to John the Baptist preach about an angry God for whose coming in judgment men must prepare themselves. When Jesus began independent work, he seems to have done so under a conviction that God would help men prepare because he really loved men. 3. The method of Jesus is also striking. This perhaps reveals more clearly than anything else the real genius of his religion. John preached in the wilderness where men came to him, and the professional rabbi often established a school to which pupils resorted. But Jesus went to the people. He traveled about among the synagogues. He talked to crowds in the city street or beside the sea and apparently sought especially to reach the masses. This method was well suited to produce trouble for the teacher in case his message proved to be unwelcome to the authorities, but it accorded well with Jesus' notion of God's desire to help all men. 4. Jesus seems to have worked under the pressure of opposition during most of his entire career. His aggressive method tended to arouse hostility, and the mystical strain in his religion, together with his apparent bias toward nonconformity, made it difficult for him to understand the Jewish leaders of the day and impossible for them to understand him. Consequently, his was the religious experience of one who suffered persecution even unto martyrdom. 5. One of the most significant items in the history of early Christianity is the fact that Jesus' religious personality impressed itself so strongly upon an inner group of his disciples. His Jewish heritages, his mystical leanings, his aggressiveness, and his persistence even under persecution were all produced more or less perfectly in the careers of his followers. The power of his influence upon them was remarkable, and this fact serves to reveal his own character as a religious individual. Jesus' Place in Early Christianity Although Jesus was put to death before any formal organization of the Christian movement had taken place, Still, he is commonly regarded as the founder of this organization. To be sure, as the details of organization were worked out to meet later necessities, there was a natural disposition to seek the authority of Jesus for the course of the development. He was now thought to have accepted baptism by John in order to establish the Christian rite. Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3.15 It was also believed that Jesus had installed Peter as head of the new organization. The last meal which Jesus had eaten informally with the disciples now came to be viewed as the deliberate establishment of a Christian rite which he had designed to be perpetuated in his memory. Similarly, 
after the leaders of the new movement rather tardily arrived at the conviction of a world-wide mission they felt assured that jesus himself had intended this result and had in fact commissioned them to make disciples of all nations these matters all belong in the history of the expanding movement subsequent to Jesus' death. And Jesus cannot be regarded as the immediate founder of the new ecclesiastical organization which gradually evolved in the apostolic age. But is he not the author of the Christian doctrine, and so the founder of Christianity in the sense that he authenticated its theology? On this point also, historical investigation casts some doubt. Early Christian dogma centered about the official heavenly Christ, and only gradually did believers come to think of the earthly Jesus as authenticating the specifically new doctrines of Christianity. In fact, the new movement Christianity took its name not from Jesus, but from the exalted Christ. Nevertheless, Jesus' actual contribution to the rise of Christianity is really more significant than might at first sight appear. But the historian must look for this significance in the sphere of personal daily contact between Jesus and his associates, rather than in the realm of formality and officialism. It was in daily life that the disciples received their most enduring impressions of him, as well as those ideals of piety and devotion exemplified in the propagation of their new faith. End of chapter 5, part 4